welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. All right. Now return to our study last week, Acts chapter 15. We surely all remember, it was only seven days ago, Christians are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet today, in part two of Justified by Faith, we also must acknowledge that uh, no one can be saved through uttering those few words, grace alone through faith alone. That, That is not the gospel. Because the phrase faith in Christ alone is far too succinct of a declaration, uh, it only begs a further critical inquiry, what then is faith in Christ? You know, is faith merely you know, kind of an esoteric feeling? or an opinion void of any definition? Certainly not. And can any person have confidence that they stand justified before God simply because they claim to have some kind of faith as it relates to Jesus? Surely a person cannot have any confidence in a faith that has no definition. Many have expressed, you know, spurious, bogus ideas about Jesus. You've heard them. They claim, you know, that's just my private faith. Uh, In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus himself condemns that group who calls him Lord, Lord, uh, while describing them as a, you know, a large multitude who actually never even knew him or he did not know them. And many travel life on the broad road of misinformed and misplaced faith. Uh, A faith that saves, a, a faith that justifies, must be qualified by credible biblical information. And the object of our faith, that being Jesus... And our conclusions made about him must contain substance. They must be assigned definition. In fact, a true justifying faith is always categorized according to the accuracy of the faith's content. You know, Christianity has always found it necessary uh, to uh, to memorialize uh, essential doctrines. We have the historic creeds of the faith uh, that have elements of faith that must be there to justify. Many of them are summarized in creeds and songs and and, and other uh, methods of recording truth about Christ. For example, to experience salvation, our minds must embrace God as being Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Also, Jesus must be a man, but he must be much more than a man. He must be a sinless man. He must have died on the cross, bearing our sins as our penal substitute. He must have risen from the dead from the third day. Uh, The Holy Spirit must grant you a whole new spiritual rebirth, giving new life, a changed person, or you are not justified by faith. So, So the phrase, faith alone in Christ alone, that doesn't save anybody. And there exists a counterfeit, a bogus faith in Jesus that likewise cannot save anybody. Uh, So Christians must be very wary, uh, diligent in defining the content of our faith. Herein, Herein lies the danger of misconceptions of our being saved by faith alone. An insufficiently defined faith. This concern isn't unique to us uh, in the 20th century. Uh, As I stated last Sunday, we can have a pretty high confidence from evidence contained in Scripture itself that Paul's first letter to the Galatians was written before this Jerusalem council. Right about the year 49 A.D. And if there would be one other New Testament epistle written prior to this council, I believe there is, most theologians believe it is, it is a letter serving as a preemptive strike written by our Lord's brother James. James does not pen his letter as a preemptive strike against Paul. No, no. Rather, James, Peter, Paul, John, the other apostles are on the exact same page with this doctrine, grace alone through faith alone. Uh, But the Mosaic law and the circumcision continues to be circulated. Peter and James have known for some time now that this public declaration that Jews and Gentiles are both saved through faith in the exact same way, through God's grace, by faith alone, they knew this was coming. Just didn't know exactly when they would have to make the announcement. Uh, But the divine author of all Scripture, that is the Holy Spirit of God, he knows where sinful man is capable of running And what man will do with this doctrine called grace alone through faith alone? If it is not bridled. Therefore, the Holy Spirit stirs the human spirit of James to preemptively, and I would say strategically, diffuse a a sinful delusion that might arise out of this declaration that is going to be made at the Jerusalem Council. Most biblical scholars believe uh, the first apostle to write a letter is James. And the epistle of James was likely penned a short time before Galatians. 
And in his letter, James asserts, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but not through a faith that remains alone. In James chapter 2 and verse 14, he famously writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So we are justified through faith alone, faith in Christ alone, uh, but a faith that doesn't bear a righteous life, a faith that stands alone, a faith without works, James says, is dead. It's a bogus faith. Uh, And because of how carnal people might distort this, this Jerusalem council, James pens not a strawy epistle, as Martin Luther uh, assessed it, mistakenly understood. Uh, James pens a mighty letter, a powerful letter, sometime before this Acts 15 apostolic announcement hits the evening news. What does the letter say? Here's just a small sampling of James's powerful statements. Prove yourselves as doers of the word, and not just hearers who delude themselves. James 1.22 Visit orphans and widows in their distress, and, and to keep yourself unstained by the world. James 1.27 You shall not favor the gold-fingered man. It's the guy with the fat checkbook. And make distinctions among yourselves, being judges with evil motives. James 2.4. No man can tame the tongue. Turns a great forest into an inferno. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit will tame our tongue. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or uh, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4.17. And of course, this is our all-time family favorite right here. Weep and howl, you who are rich, for your miseries which, which are coming upon you. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Well, he is not exactly Mr. Rogers, is he? Does then this principle from last week that we are justified by faith alone in any way suggest that Christians are not born again by the Spirit of God, nor given a new heart with new desires that seeks to honor Christ uh, in holiness and righteousness? No, no. A, a, A man or a woman must be born again 
So what justified by faith alone means then, scripturally, is not that someone once justified can just remain immoral. But rather, faith alone assures we do not merit our forgiveness. We don't earn salvation in any way, uh, nor are we justified through keeping the Mosaic law. But saved by faith alone is never a faith that remains alone. The saving faith of spiritual regeneration always produces fruits of righteousness. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all is new. So, by Acts 15, James has probably already circulated this letter. It's a firewall against grace abuse. And he, Peter, and Paul, they always remain on the exact same page. Always on the same page. Paul agrees, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Uh, So we are justified by faith, as James would say, faith that works. So Peter, he's going to offer his judgment in verse 6. The apostles already know, we already know that justification in the name of Jesus displays moral reform, and true saving faith pursues theological substance. It wants to know what faith is. And a true Christian isn't saved by a faith that remains alone. Instead, Christians are brought to life, born again, led by the Spirit of God to pursue His design. But justification doesn't need circumcision. Now that Christ has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and promises that had hinged, follow me, that had hinged upon preserving the ethnic lineage of Israel and King David. And because that old covenant, which God had hinged on the ethnicity of Israel, has now been made obsolete, the new covenant in Christ has replaced it. Therefore, whether you are a Jew... Or whether you are circumcised is inconsequential concerning the new covenant. Christ has surrendered his sinless life and his body, Hebrews 10.12, as a one-time sacrifice for all sins, which infinitely supersedes and replaces all old covenant sacrifices prescribed under the law. God doesn't want those anymore. In fact, God is now so appalled 
by, by sacrifices that would be meant to circum, circumvent his son. And he's so offended, God will use a Roman general named Titus to level the temple in Jerusalem in about 20 more years. Precisely as Daniel chapter 9 and Jesus himself predict as Jesus was approaching the Mount of Olives. Colossians 2 verse 17 concludes that that law given at Sinai, given to Israel at Sinai, you know, feasts, festivals, priestly calendars, you know, moons uh, governing uh, the religious calendars, even Sabbaths were merely a shadow of what was to come. But the substance is in Christ. Therefore, in response to the protest that has been raised by the Pharisees, saw it last week in in verse 5, Acts 15 verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter concludes, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. In a different way? No. Peter bases his judgment against circumcision using a reverse argument. Don't miss this. Instead of Peter declaring... The Gentiles are saved just like us. Peter boosts the emphasis in his statement by by turning the tables. No, verse 11, we Jews are saved in the same way they are. Not that they're saved in the way we are, that might have added confusion. Peter says, we Jews are saved like Gentiles. I bet you could have heard a pin drop in the room at that point. We are justified by, we Jews are justified by faith just like Gentiles. Without circumcision. Just as also our father Abraham, we learned last week, Genesis 15, was justified by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. This grafting in of the Gentiles establishes circumcision as nothing. 
In Galatians, we read last week, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. And as it pertains to the righteousness and salvation, circumcision has never meant anything, all the way back to Abraham. Need further evidence? Look no further than Hebrews chapter 3. It reminds us how at least several hundred thousand circumcised Jews failed to enter the promised land because they had an evil, unbelieving heart that fell away from the living God. Circumcised Israelites failed to enter into rest because of their unbelief. Not because they failed to be circumcised. Circumcision never saved. It was merely a sign of the old covenant promised to assure there would be a descendant, an heir to the throne of King David. Uh, That descendant would come to fulfill the law which had remained a yoke of slavery. Uh, A divine standard of righteousness that neither the Jews nor their forefathers could ever bear. In response to the protest of, remember, believing Pharisees, Peter's argument reveals how the law, and particularly circumcision, is an element of the law, But Peter's argument reveals how the law has never been able to save anybody. As holy and as perfect as the law is, Peter says, we never kept it. And now now you want to hang that monstrosity of ordinances around the neck of the Gentiles? It's irrational. Who is the only one who ever kept the law perfectly? Jesus, God's holy son. And Peter says, so so here's an idea. I'm paraphrasing for him. Here's an idea. Aren't you all kind of tired of carrying on that charade? Instead of linking this this yoke of slavery, that's what Paul refers to it in Galatians chapter 5. Instead of linking this yoke of slavery to them, the Gentiles, how about we Jews conform ourselves to them and be cleansed by faith in the same way and embrace our Savior's plea, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Find that in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, you take my yoke, you'll find rest. 
Christians today rest in the knowledge that Jesus kept the law for us. By the way, Jesus is also where we find our Sabbath rest today. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews reminds, uh, well, reminds Hebrews, in chapter 4, remember how you, you, your circumcised but unbelieving ancestors, they fell in the wilderness, they did not enter into God's rest in the promised land. The same ones, by the way, described in Hebrews chapter 3 as having an evil, unbelieving heart. Don't follow their pattern. They never found rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, since it remains for some of you to enter God's rest, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Where do Christians find rest? Once you trust in Christ as your Savior, Today is your day of rest. We rest in the finished work of Christ at Calvary. And this is the reason why Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 states, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Be diligent to enter his rest. We don't rest for just a day, but in Him. That old covenant Sabbath day was merely a shadow of the substance that would be found in Jesus Christ. And the fullness of the rest we experience in Him. He is our Sabbath rest. Be diligent to enter His rest. Rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this is the reason Paul confidently declares in Colossians 2 verse 16, let no one judge you by a Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was given to Israel while they were in the wilderness, and it was ratified at Mount Sinai. We are not under that Mount Sinai obligation. The New Testament never commands Christians to worship on a specific day. To the contrary, Jesus announces, while he was told he was breaking the Sabbath, by the way, he announces, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'll determine what the Sabbath is. And Christians, in a spiritual essence, Obey the fourth commandment by resting from our works of righteousness, works-centered, false righteousness, to rest our faith in the work of Christ. He is our Sabbath rest, period. We can rest physically and worship on whatever day we prefer. Uh, I prefer to relax on Saturday. Why? Because I work every Sunday. Sadly, people who conclude they are pleasing God through ritualistically preserving 
the Sabbath on Saturday. Ones who think they're satisfying the Mosaic law, they have failed to enter God's rest. They're still trying to keep the law, whether it's circumcision or the feasts or the Sabbaths or the festivals. They're still got a yoke of slavery hanging around their neck. Resting from the law not only applies to us Gentiles, the apostles, and now we see also there are elders appointed who in every city are beginning to take the lead. They debate not with one another. The apostles aren't debating with one another here, but with the legalistic Pharisees. That's who they're debating with. And then comes this overarching conclusion to this passage. Peter says the Holy Spirit has already provided God's testimony. Peter says, it is God's Spirit that is poured out on the Jews back at Pentecost, who is the same Spirit who is poured out on the Gentiles like Cornelius in Caesarea. Peter declares in verse 7, I was the first to preach the gospel to both groups, so I know a little bit about this. And the irrefutable testimony of the Holy Spirit found in verse 9 is what? God has made no distinction between us and them. Christ is building not two churches, but one church. We are, Ephesians 2 said, a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 4.4 describes the church as having um, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And God's Spirit brings unity to the church. God makes no distinction. The Apostle Paul agrees in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Pretty clear. Peter said God makes no distinction. And this speaks to the spiritual unity in Christ. You know, Paul doesn't propose that ethnicities or gender roles disappear here. He he's proposing he is. He is announcing spiritual divisions cease here. They disappear. Again, Peter tells the Jews, we are justified by faith like those Gentiles. In Colossians 3 verse 11, Paul writes that all Christians experience a renewal of knowledge, quote, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, 
but Christ is all and in all. Romans 10 verse 11. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The the number of references to, to Jew and Gentile being equal it should be impossible to miss. In the church of Corinth, they were distinguishing themselves between who baptized who. Apollos baptized some. Paul had baptized some. Peter or Cephas had baptized some. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul asked, has Christ been divided? In verse 24, he says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All of these assure. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 again about speaks of the new covenant being poured out. But all of these assure the new covenant has been received by both Jews, the Jew first, but then also the Greek. The church is not just for Jews. The church is not just for Gentiles. Christ's church consists of both Jews and Gentiles, both together sharing in the new covenant. Friends, the church, Christ's church, is not a Gentile phenomenon. Perhaps the grand poobah of passages. Assuring God no longer makes any distinction is found in our earlier scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 2. There, in verse 14, we read, That Christ himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the the barrier of the dividing wall. The word there means destroyed, decimated the dividing wall. We are one people of God. Who dares to erect a new dividing wall where Christ has demolished and broken it down. Jews have had the yoke of the law removed, says Peter, and are saved just like Gentiles. Any kind of church that that separates Jews becomes a haven for for reestablishing the law. Dietary restrictions, circumcision, feasts, festivals, moons, Sabbaths, or excludes the Gentiles. That's illegitimate. It's illegitimate approach. We are never to have a Jewish church built across the street from a Gentile church, nor to worship God differently differently. 
nor to worship him separately. We are one in Christ. Christ demolished the dividing wall, Ephesians 2 verse 15. How? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, that's the law, abolishing it, so that in himself he might take the two, Jew and Gentile, and make them into one new man, thus establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross. One body to God through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. Friends, there remains no alternative path for the Jew. We are one new man. We are reconciled in one body through the cross. And verse 1 says, Through him we have, we both have our same access in one spirit to the Father. What then is this eternal relationship between Jew and Gentile? Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We are a temple. We are God's temple. How about just one more reference? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made of one Spirit to drink. Friends, these are not just one or two isolated proof texts. Scripture is not unclear concerning this. Jews and Gentiles are forever united by faith in Christ as one people of God. And I could easily offer 30 proof texts showing how the church is now referred to as the people of God. Folks, you are the people of God. And the Jews are not separate. You know, I often, I quite often hear people suggesting that, you know, unbelieving ethnic Jews, Benjamin Netanyahu, Gal Gadot, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. How they are really the people of God. And that the bride of Christ, his church, you know, it's, it's a distant cousin. It's a Gentile stepsister. 
But let me tell you what Scripture says about the people of God. We, His church, are the people of God. And all Christians are blood relatives, related through the blood that is shed at Calvary. I'm sure Netanyahu, Gal Gadot, I'm sure they're very pleasantly nice people. But they have no relationship with God and never will join the people of God unless they, or less or until they are justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. That's the only way. Ethnic Jews do not enjoy a separate privileged status with God. Today there exists a prevalent theology, an idea proposing ethnic Jews still enjoy a special relationship with God through the Old Covenant. The authority of Scripture says the Old Covenant, along with its commands and its ordinances, are obsolete. They've been nailed to the cross. The Old Covenant has been superseded by the New Covenant, which Jesus announced to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to his Jewish disciples, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. Not the Old Covenant revisited. The New Covenant given to the Jews. The New Covenant became fully ratified the next day at the cross. Uh, For roughly the first 15 years after Pentecost, the church remained exclusively Jews. And when Peter preached to Cornelius and the Spirit was poured out upon the Greeks, Gentiles did not replace Israel. Folks, that is a straw, straw man argument. It misrepresents the truth. We Gentiles were grafted in to join the believing remnant of Israel in the church where God makes no distinction. When people ask me, and they do, Is there not a promise for the ethnic Jew remaining in God's plan today? The Bible says, yes. Their promise is found in Christ Jesus today, just like Gentiles also. And because believing Jews are still entering Christ's church daily today, eventually all believing Israel the remnant, all believing Israel, will be saved. But Romans 9 verse 6 clarifies that they are not all believing Israel who have descended ethnically from Israel. True Israel is not all genetic descendants of Abraham. True Israel is believing Israel descendants of Abraham. Only the ones who will believe. And Romans 9 verse 27 assures, it is only the believing remnant, Paul says, the remnant of Israel that will be saved. 
it is, Romans 9.27, it is the remnant that will be saved. Therefore, when Romans 11 verse 26 concludes, all Israel, is, all Israel will be saved, Paul's premise is clearly already defined in Romans 9 to be the believing remnant, that all true believing Israel will be saved. Ethnic Jews who do not come believing are not true Israel. Not every ethnic Jew who fails to trust in Christ will be saved. That's not the way it works. I know you've heard that from different preachers. That is not the way it works. It is you are justified by faith in Christ alone. So how many Jews today will become part of true believing Israel? I have no idea. Jews still trust in Christ today. I did a memorial for one on uh, Saturday, and he was an ethnic Jew who had trusted in Jesus Christ and described him to his wife, uh, described Jesus to his wife as his ticket to heaven. They're still coming in. There might be an outpouring of God's Spirit upon the Jews right now. I don't have the data. I don't know exactly where each heart is landing, Gentiles or Jews. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles together in the church are the people of God. And there is no hope of ever resurrecting the old covenant for ethnic Israel. We as Christians offer no help to the Jew by helping them to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem that God himself had broken down. Where they will attempt to once again offer God a, a bull or goat or a red heifer instead of Christ. To reinstate the old covenant for Jews, it is such a distortion of Scripture. To suggest to a Jew that they still benefit today through the old covenant, that is sadly a damning proposition. Jews can only be justified by faith in the same way we are also. So, our approach, if we wanted to show compassion, would not be to help them reconstruct something that is obsolete. It would be by sending preaching, gospel preaching missionaries to the Jews, to Israel, if you wanted to do something compassionate. Jews are saved the same way we are. So as we find, as we wind ourselves down, one final clarification. And we would never want to confuse ethnic Jews by suggesting to them that, you know, we're going to, to build your temple back up for you. Or to offer alternate sacrifices instead of Jesus. That idea, we've talked about this before, but just a clarification. That idea comes through a 
popular distortion of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 that supposes before the Jews can enjoy and join the new covenant, they're first going to have to rebuild their temple and reinstitute temple sacrifices before Christ can come to them. The problem is, these people don't understand that the book of Daniel was written well more than 500 years before Christ was born. And the temple was already rebuilt when Christ came to them in a manger. They got their chronology out of whack. The error arises when they project Daniel chapter 9 to be filled in our future when it was merely to be fulfilled in Daniel's future. And Daniel 9 verse 27 does not describe the needed construction or reconstruction of the temple, but rather Daniel describes the destruction of Herod's second temple and God then putting a stop to all sacrifices and grain offerings because Jesus Christ, uh, they had rejected him. That's what it's describing. Daniel's prophecy in 9 verse 27 already occurred in 70 AD. Just as Christ promised as he ascended the Mount of Olives that not one stone will be left upon another. This isn't something projected out 2,000 years by Jesus. That desolation of the temple has already occurred. There is no promise left in the old covenant for the Jew. Jews are saved in the new covenant, just like us. Again, Hebrews describes the old covenant as obsolete. Uh, Some ask, some of you prophecy buffs will appreciate this. Um, Some ask about the 70th seven of Daniel. Ever heard of that? 70th week of Daniel? It's actually literally in the Hebrew, 70th seven. Some ask about the 70th seven of Daniel. A theologian named John Nelson Darby first proposed um, in the year around 1830 AD, John Nelson Darby first proposed that the Jews are waiting for this 70th seven. He described it as a seven-year second chance at salvation after Christ returns. And that the Gentile church must be raptured before this 70th seven can begin. His ideas got very popular and still are. But what Daniel chapter 9 states, the 70th week or the 70th seven of Daniel, not as an end times seven-year second chance for the Jew, but the 70th seven is described as an age or an era that, quote, finishes transgression, makes an end to sin, makes atonement for iniquity, 
and establishing everlasting righteousness. And Daniel 9 says the 70th seven begins, or the 70th week, if you want to call it that, the 70th seven begins when the Messiah is cut off. What year was that? 30 AD, roughly. And Daniel says at that time, the same Messiah would make a a firm covenant, a strong covenant, an unbreakable covenant, the new covenant. He does it with the many as the 70th seven. The 70th seven? Lots of lore, lots of movies made about this stuff, errant movies coming out of Hollywood. The 70th seven is defined by Daniel as complete forgiveness of sins and eternal righteousness ensuring, uh, ensuing once the Messiah is cut off, who then inaugurates a strong new covenant as the 70th seven. The 70th seven of Daniel symbolizes perfection, perfect righteousness, and perfect forgiveness. In Matthew 18, verse 21, if you still stand uh, unconvinced, in Matthew 18, verse 21, when wanting to learn what signifies the threshold of forgiveness that is sufficient, Peter approaches Jesus to ask, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? What did Jesus say to him? I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Complete forgiveness. Essentially, Jesus tells Peter, You want to know what complete forgiveness is? Go and read the answer to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. That threshold of perfection, the 70th seven, is experienced once the Messiah is cut off, when he makes an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, and establishes everlasting righteousness. That's the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th seven of Daniel is not some future seven-year time period after the church is raptured out. Through the new covenant in Christ, the church is in the midst of the 70th seven right now. We're enjoying all the benefits of Christ and the new covenant, the 70th seven. There's no future blessing awaiting the Jew that they are not already experiencing along with the Gentiles together in Christ's church. The 70th seven, the new covenant is enjoyed equally by the Jews and the Gentiles today. For God makes no distinction. Today is the day of rest. Be diligent to enter his rest. Let's pray.
Father, as you have um, endured with us so long now, as man continues to go his own way, each astray, each to his own way, uh, Lord, you are still nonetheless uh, showing grace, showing mercy, offering forgiveness and eternal righteousness. We would ask that you would show that and shower that perfect, perfect righteousness on every person here listening today. That each one would know Christ as Savior. That we'd all be together again uh, when Christ returns. That on the day when judgment comes, Nobody be left behind, but all of us be raptured into your presence to enjoy all of your perfection throughout all of eternity. In Christ's name, amen. <music>